Take your Bibles tonight and turn to the book of Romans. I've really been praying and asking the Lord to put some direction and what He would have us explore as a church family. Sunday mornings we have taken a couple weeks and deviated from our series on authentic Christianity. We had started in the Beatitudes, the Blessed Life, Part 1, Part 2, and Part 3. This coming Sunday, we'll pick right back up with that incredible study, uh, the Blessed Life, Part 4. That word in Matthew 5, blessed are the, and then the qualifier is given. It's such a powerful word. That Greek word is makarios. It means happy, internally satisfied. And we've really taken apart each thing that Jesus said there. We've done our best to understand exactly what he meant by poor in spirit. And um, really just love that study and what we're doing there. But uh, most recently, verse by verse, we had the privilege of going through the book of Acts. Uh, Pastor Ralph took, I'm not sure how long it was, it was a very long time that we went through the book of Acts. And uh, I had prepared some in Ecclesiastes and had thought about going uh, in a different route. But the Lord really put the book of Romans on my heart and specifically the epistles of the Apostle Paul. So that's what we're going to do. And I'll be honest with you, uh, looking ahead at what the epistles of uh, the Apostle Paul are, this could be years, ladies and gentlemen, of getting into these New Testament letters. That's not a problem. That's a good thing. And so I want you to be excited. I want you to be studying, thinking, praying, and embracing the truth around all of these letters. There's so much goodness, and uh, really it's, it defines so much of our faith. We've shared our burden multiple times that our desire to explore authentic Christianity, authentic faith, it must be defined from Scripture. I love my heritage. I love Baptist heritage especially. I'll be a Baptist until the day I die. I'm thankful for uh, the traceable lines all the way back to Christ in Baptist history. But I want to know that what I believe, I want to know that what I say is firmly rooted inside of God's Word and not tied to the tradition of men. There are wonderful things that men in their traditions have brought us that come from God's word. It's not to challenge or to spark thoughts of doubt. Rather, it is to bolster our faith. It is to strengthen our faith and to know that we can believe exactly what we believe and that we can believe it because it's found in the Bible. And not that it's Winston's opinion or Pastor Ralph's opinion or one of these other pastors and their opinion, or someone you found on YouTube, but that it came from God's Word. That's been my heart, and that is what we will continue to do as we explore these verses, uh, verse by verse, really in some places, word by word, in the book of Romans. And so thank you again for all of your kind words and for your faithfulness, your prayer, and uh, I'm thankful for all of you and your heart for the Lord. The book of Romans. Let's go ahead and read Romans 1.1. We'll pause there and then we'll talk about this incredible verse. 
And I don't believe we'll get any further tonight than Romans 1.1. Romans 1, chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you again for this day. God, this day that you've given us. And now, Father, for an opportunity to study your word. And God, I pray that now you would prepare hearts and minds to hear the word of God preached. And God, that the truth, the principles of this verse, God, that it would challenge our hearts. That we would see Jesus for who he is. God, we would see this incredible story in your hand and how you moved and manipulated the hearts and the minds of men. And Father, that we would be encouraged, that we would be refreshed from your word tonight. I pray that you would hide me behind the cross Father, I pray that Jesus would be seen, Lord, and that the words, God, that they would be what you would want said. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. I know this tonight before we get into the message, uh, one of our members, Ronnie Merrill, he's at home tonight and we need to pray for him. He had a terrible fall off of a ladder, uh, had a uh, terrible fracture in his ankle and leg and that had to be surgically repaired today. So be praying for him I know that uh, he would definitely, definitely appreciate that. The Heron family, and we need to be praying for them and the passing of their brother. I know there are some heavy hearts here tonight, but I'm glad that you're here and we're praying for you. And uh, that prayer list that goes out, no doubt you would want someone to pray for you if your name or your family were on there. But just as a moment, we need to remember those who are sick in body and need prayer. So here we are, Romans chapter number one, verse number one. Now, we said a couple of words here, and I want us to approach this uh, in a way that we understand that there may be somebody listening, or there may be a child, there may be a student, there may be someone watching online who does not have the same level of biblical knowledge that you do. Understand that what we preach here tonight and what we're going to begin to explore in Romans There may be parts or elements here, especially on the front end, that seem elementary. But part of the problem, part of the issue, especially in the American church, is the American home has stopped teaching the basics and the principles of God's Word. Many people get saved in their 20s, their 30s, even their 40s. They come into the faith, and somewhere there's a gap, and they don't begin a discipleship program. So when they get into like the book of Romans or the book of Acts... Some of the language, some of the words that you know, that you've known since you were a child, are foreign to some people. And really, uh, it's our job, it's our duty to do the best that we can to explain that, to teach that, to preach that. And then it does nothing more than elevate the text. It gives them a better understanding. I just said the word epistle. What is the word epistle? I'm not going to spend very long here, but there may be someone listening or someone watching, someone in here. You really don't understand what the word epistle means. Now, there's many things we could say about an epistle and uh, how it's applied and who it's written to and tone and text and first, second, and third person. But simply put, an epistle is an open letter. It's a letter to a group of people. An epistle written here by the Apostle Paul, written to a church in Rome, a city. So this is not only an open letter to a church, but to all the believers that live in a particular place. Uh, In the New Testament, there are seven 
of those epistles, seven of those letters that we know to be, that belong to the Apostle Paul. Now, these letters that were written, we'll explore now, firstly, Romans. But these letters were written to Rome, to Corinth, to Galatia, to Ephesus, to Philippi, to Colossae, and to Thessalonica. So we have from those letters, from those epistles, they have been taken and canonized or uh, rather put into scripture as according to what God desires. Remember this, we believe that everything that's in the Bible is there for a reason. God has it there the way he wants it. Every word, it is infallible, it's unchallengeable. God's word is wholly inspired and it's divine in its construction. So God in purpose and in divine wisdom included these letters that this man named the Apostle Paul wrote. He put them in our Bible for us to have access to. We believe that every letter that the Apostle Paul wrote because it finds itself in Scripture was wholly inspired. Not that Paul was a divine person, but through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it was written exactly as it was to be written so that we could have it canonized in holy text and that tonight, thousands of years later, we're reading a letter, a correspondence between a godly man and a church. If you think about it, it's quite incredible the lengths that God went to for you to have a copy of his word sitting in his lap. Never take that for granted. But that word epistle is simply an open letter. So understand that, embrace that. Uh, another word that we read here, an apostle. What is an apostle? Now, especially here, we could spend two or three weeks going through apostlehood and what an apostle really was and signs and wonders and miracles and how now there is not that level of apostleship upon the church. There are not people now with new revelation. There are not miracles. Uh, there's no one alive on earth today whose shadow you can pass through and be healed of body. That's not what's happening now. We're past that. It's a new day and new age in the church. But specifically understand this, that the apostle that the apostle Paul is referred to as is basically an envoy, an ambassador, one who is sent to represent someone. He's an ambassador carrying out the commission of a commissioning agent. An ambassador carrying out the commission of the commissioning agent. The commissioning agent just happens to be God himself. So the Apostle Paul is saying that he is a special envoy, a special representative of God, holy and divinely constructed in plan that God would send him and use him as the mouthpiece to Christians to whom he came in contact with and as a witness to not only Gentiles, but to Jews, the good news of Jesus Christ. So we know what now what an epistle is. We have an idea. We know that an apostle is someone who is sent. Uh, the word there, apostle in the Greek, is apostolos, apostolos. And it really, truly means to be one who is sent. Simply one who has a message to deliver. That's what this means. Now, Let's go a little deeper. We know now what the letter is, the epistle. We know now what the apostle is, the one who has sent, the envoy, the ambassador. Now we come to this man named Paul. Who is Paul? 
Now, obviously, we, if you've been around your Bible at all, you have a, a working knowledge, a working idea of who the Apostle Paul is. And I'm thankful for that. But if you're new to your Bible or you're new to the faith, maybe the Apostle Paul seems to be an obscure figure that you really don't know. Wonderful. Very quickly, we're going to drive by and see who the Apostle Paul is tonight. Now, this Paul that we're speaking about tonight is actually a man named Saul, formerly Saul of Tarsus. And this Paul, this Saul, you can use those names interchangeably, before his conversion is a Jewish rabbi. He's a Jewish rabbi of one of the most law-abiding, law-keeping religious sects of the Jewish faith, the Pharisees. You go through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and there's so much about that group of people, the Pharisees. The Apostle Paul, before he became Paul, was Saul, the Jewish Pharisaical rabbi. Brilliant man, brilliant mind, knew the law, very intelligent, spoke multiple languages. He carried himself well. Uh, He wasn't much of a public speaker from what we see and what we understand, but this man carried himself in his mind. He was a sharp instrument of knowledge. That's who he was. Now, very quickly, we're not going to take a lot of time to explore this because we've already learned some of this in our study on Acts. But you go into Acts chapter 7, and what you find is the first mention of a man named Saul, this Jewish rabbi. And he is filled with rage. He's filled with hate. He hates Jesus. He hates the teachings of Christians. He hates the implications that Jesus' body has gone missing from Jerusalem. They cannot find the body of this man that had been crucified. And now some time has gone by and this Christian faith, this belief in Christ is spreading like wildfire. And it's being met with great opposition from ultra-religious Jews who feel their control slowly fading away. This Jesus, his body's not been seen. There's so many eyewitnesses still alive at this point in time to so much of what happens in Jesus' time after resurrection. Imagine that, being around in town, going shopping, and running into someone who's wide-eyed and bushy-tailed, who's lost their mind saying, hey, we had it all wrong. That Jesus really was the Christ, the Messiah. I saw it with my own eyes. That's the temperature and the tone of the time. Eyewitnesses still alive who are preaching and teaching that Jesus was the Messiah. And Paul hates it. He hates it. He is so enraged with who they are. And what we begin to see to happen is not only persecution, but we go to the end of Acts 7 and we see this young man named Stephen, the first martyr, the first person to lose his life for the cause of Christ. It's a beautiful story. If you don't know it, he's stoned to death for his faith, but the Bible clearly states that he simply went to sleep, that God had mercy and took Stephen. Another wonderful story for you to understand and to read. But at the end of that story, you see this character named Saul simply appear in the story. And as you go into Acts 8, you really get an idea of who Paul is, who Saul of Tarsus is. He is a raging, hateful Jew who hates the truth that Jesus was the Messiah. Go into Acts 8, verse number 3. It shows us 
a glimpse of who Paul is. Now remember, we're learning this, understanding this together to understand who it is that is writing the book of Romans, the epistle to the church in Rome. Acts 8.3, as for Saul, okay, here he is as Saul. He's not Paul here, he's Saul. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house, inhaling men and women, committed them to prison. He's literally going into the homes of the believers, those who believe on the name of Jesus Christ, those who embrace Christ as Messiah, and know of this man named Saul is going into their home. He's wreaking havoc. He's destroying everything in his path, and he's putting those people in prison. That's how much hatred lives inside the heart of this man. And then we get to Acts chapter 9. Something miraculous happens in the life of this hateful, rage-filled Jew. Acts 9, go to the first verse. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest. I'm going to pause right there. He's so enraged, he so hates the Christians, he so hates what they stand for, that he goes above and beyond and goes to the high priest He's doing extra duty. He's doing extra work to be able to carry out attacks against the church. This is someone who does not love Jesus. This man is hateful towards Christians. And so much so he goes to the high priest and look what he does when he goes for his extra duty that he put on himself. And desired of the high priest letters to Damascus to the synagogues, he wants to be organized in his hate, that if any found of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Paul saw at this point is so hateful and rage filled. He goes to the high priest and he says, if I find a Christian, I want to be able to bring them back in chains and put them in prison in Jerusalem. This is a man who is showing you his cards. He does not like what Jesus stands for. He does not believe in his heart that these Christians are who they say they are. They are losing control, the religious Jews are, and they want to snuff out this problem of them losing power and influence on people as quickly as possible. That's what's happening here. But then he gets on the road to Damascus and something happens that I promise you he was not expecting to happen. Verse number three says, And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? Mm. And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what will thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, arise and go into the city and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Now on that Damascus road, Jesus intervenes not only for the lives and the safety of the church, but because he had a plan and he had a purpose for this booger named Saul. He thought his whole life would be devoted to hurting, to stopping, to absolutely demolishing the Christian faith. 
But God in grace and in mercy and with a bigger plan had a bigger purpose for Paul's life. A wonderful purpose for his life. Saul becomes Paul converted on the Damascus road. Go to Acts 9.20. Here is evidence that something in his life has changed. This man who was looking for Christians to chain them and take them back to prison. Look what happens after he gets saved in Acts chapter 9 verse number 20. And straightway, straightway, that means immediately he preached Christ in the synagogues. Wait a minute, back up. This is just a few verses removed from him going to the high priest, seeking letters to kill and to destroy the lives of Christians. Yet it says in verse number 20, immediately, straightway, he was preaching Christ in the synagogues. He was going into the root of the system and saying, hey, I had it all wrong. That Jesus Christ of Nazareth really is the Messiah. He really is the one. Uh, And he preached about him. This is a radical change. He was converted on the Damascus road. And look what happens. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is this not he that destroyed them which called on his name in Jerusalem and came hither for that intent that he might bring them bound to the chief priest? But Saul increased more in strength and confounded the Jews which dealt which dwelt at Damascus proving that this is very Christ. I want you to pay attention to that verse. This is evidence that the Jews, the Pharisees, maybe even some of the Sadducees knew in the depths of their heart. Think about it. If it's proof that the Jesus Christ of Nazareth really is who he said he was. And this verse says it was proven They knew in their hearts, the depths of their hearts, what they had done. Yet they were so blinded by the desire to be right. They were more in love with their own opinion being right than they were actually finding and loving and worshiping the real Messiah. That shows you the heart and the condition of the religious Jew at this time. Desperately wicked and deceitful above all, their prophet Jeremiah said. That's the heart condition of these Jews who are in Damascus. And straightway he preached Jesus. And they get so mad, look what happens. And after many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. They get so mad that... Saul has come now into the synagogues not to look for Christians to hunt them down and to chain them, but is now preaching about him, believing upon his name. They're ready to kill him. They're literally ready to take his life for betraying the plan that they would snuff out these Christians. And in verse number 25, I love what happens here. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down by the wall in a basket. I want you to take your pen or your highlighter and I want you to underline the words in a basket. We will revisit the basket, the basket of provision. That's a whole other message. I'm not going there tonight. So here we have a Jewish rabbi, a persecutor of Christians, a persecutor of the faith, one who hated Christ, a Pharisee who was hunting Christians. 
is ran down literally by Christ himself on the road to Damascus, is converted, straightway begins to preach Christ, angers the Jews to the point they're ready to kill him. Then Acts 13, 9, Luke in Acts gives us the two definitions of his name, if you will, or that they're interchangeable. Uh, Paul would be his Roman name. He's been given the task to preach to the Gentiles. So he is using now the name Paul, the Roman name. Acts 13.9 explains this. And it's a reminder that these names really are interchangeable. Listen to me now. Mm. Saul of Tarsus never stopped existing. He never stopped being who he was. He was always going to live with the fact of what he had done. But the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus, as we will learn as we study Romans, it almost is a burden upon Paul in a way he can't even put into words. That I am the chief sinner, he talks about in the New Testament. He is so weighted down by his past that he has to find and for us define what real grace and what real mercy is. And we're going to see that as we study the book of Romans. But you need to remember as we go through this, who this is that's writing this letter. This is Saul of Tarsus. This is the rabbi, the Pharisee who got saved on the road to Damascus. And now his name's Paul and straightway he's preaching Christ. May I point out that his heart, his attitude, his mind, his words, his desires changed after he got saved. Praise God. Something changed in that man. He went from wanting to kill him and imprison them to preaching the truth that Jesus saves. I can imagine Paul going into the synagogue and singing, we have heard the joyful sound, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. I don't know if that song was written then. But notice the change. He went from hunting them and wanting to destroy them to preaching what they were preaching. There was a change. This is a story, ladies and gentlemen, you do not want to miss. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. What an incredible start to this story. So now we advance, okay? Here's what you've got to understand about Scripture. This is not an error in Scripture. Uh, Some liberal philosophers and wannabe theologians try to say that it's an error in God's word. It's not an error in God's word. But chronologically speaking, Romans is actually the sixth epistle. This is later in his ministry. We say, well, why isn't it put in the right way? We will explore that. We'll explain all of that. God has a perfect reason and a perfect time on how canonized scripture was given to us. But Romans is the sixth letter. This is later in his ministry. This is advanced years. But we're going to follow how scripture has it laid out for us. But we'll make those points that uh, I believe 1 Thessalonians might have been the actual first epistle that he had written after his conversion. But this is his sixth. This is on in to his ministry. So we have a little background on Paul. Now I want to give you a little background on who he's writing to and what's happening in Rome at this time. It's a very important thing that you understand this as we go forward. Now we know from the book of Acts that the church in Rome had existed for some time. It had been there. 
What you have to understand about Rome is that church had a real issue with the Jewish, non-Jewish thing. They made a thing about it. Some were too Jewish in some people's minds. Some weren't Jewish enough in other people's minds. You've got an emperor named Claudius who has uh, basically exiled all the Jews for a time. And then he gets pressure and the Jews are allowed to come back. When those Jews are allowed to come back, they come back to the non-Jewish church that they had left. So they come back and the church, they're not honoring any of those customs. There's even a question on whether they should honor circumcision. They're fighting about whether they should honor the Sabbath. They're fussing and fighting about what laws to keep and uh, what law of liberty is and uh, how Christ changes it all and yet keeps the law and it perfects the law. There's a real argument that's happening here in this church. And it has to do with Jewish custom versus Christianity as it grows and it blossoms. So Paul is writing this to a church in Rome that's divided. The Jews have come back. Claudius has expelled them. He's allowed them to come back. So the Jews are back, but they're still divided. This is a very divided church. Uh, But Paul had some things he wanted to accomplish. Uh, To the best of our knowledge, Paul has not been to Rome yet. As Paul, the apostle, with the good news of Jesus Christ. But he's writing this letter chiefly that this church will come together, that they will stop fussing and fighting about things that do not matter. That seems to still be a cultural thing that we have picked up pretty well. Fussing and fighting about things in the end that really do not matter. Some of it did matter. Some of it was a new church trying to understand their role in the world and what was required of them. But some of it was petty. Some of it was preference. And what it was doing is it was taking the edge off of their sword. They had lost sight on what really mattered. And they were fussing and fighting over things that in the end would not be of consequence And so Paul wants to shake this church. He wants this letter to be sent out and uh, as many people to read it and to hear it as possible before he gets to Rome. He's got some work to do, but he wants this letter to go first. And really all this brewing tension, it's questions and doubts. And so much of it, Paul identifies with. Think of it now. Paul has been a pharisaical rabbi. He has been the Jew of all Jews. Educated. He knows the law forwards and backwards. It's been his whole life. He knows everything about it. He knows the Torah. He knows what Moses said. He knows what the prophet said. He is that guy. And somehow he has to put all of that aside and say, listen, now that Christ has come, everything before the cross is pointing to the fact that the cross is coming. Jesus is coming. The Messiah is coming. Everything is pointing to the cross in the Old Testament and everything even into the gospel coming up to the cross. But the cross now has happened and the resurrection has happened and the day of Pentecost has happened. Things are different now. And so he has to look past his preference, what he's known all of his life, and embrace who Christ is and try to shake up this church and do something to get them from being divided. It's the plea of his heart. And really, he had a twofold idea here. He wanted this church in Rome to be the launching ground for his ministry that would expand west. 
He wanted to go as far as Spain. Paul wanted to take the good news of Jesus Christ as far as he possibly could. But he's a good missionary and he knew that if I'm going to be a good missionary and I'm going to preach the word as the sent apostle, I've got to have some churches that know how to pray. I've got to have some churches that know how to give. I've got to have some churches that know how to love and who love each other. So he wants them not only to be right for the sake of the glory of God, but for the sake of the furtherance of the gospel. Here's a little side note, asterisk for all of us. When a church loses sight of who it is and infighting becomes part of the daily struggle of belonging to a New Testament Bible-believing church, it's not always the people that sit in blue chairs that suffer. Sometimes it's the gospel message of Jesus Christ being sent out from that New Testament local Bible-believing church that suffers the most. In other words, our pettiness gets in the way of the gospel being propagated. And ladies and gentlemen, I don't want to stand in heaven and have to look at God and answer for my pettiness and my personal preference coming in the way of someone across the ocean hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. We have to keep in mind as Paul is keeping them in mind, trying to stir them, that everything that they doing this for a purpose and for a reason. In other words, the church is not an organization. The church is an organism. It's alive. It's breathing. It's moving. It has purpose. We're not here to decorate a Christmas tree like little ornaments hanging, wait for God to come get us. We've got hands. We've got feet. We've got mouths. We've got wallets. And we've got the ability to be the church. That's what he wants these people to get a hold of. Because there is work to be done. He tells them in the first part of this, I am the sent one. I'm the apostle. I've got a job to do. He wants this church to see that. So let's keep, let's keep searching this out. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. I can't go past this. I've got to touch on this. I'm only going to take a few minutes and touch on this, but we've got to get this part out of it. So we understand the epistle, we understand who we're talking about when we say Paul. We have an understanding of who it is that's being written to, the church in Rome. But now let's go into this first verse. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. A servant, underline the word servant or highlight if that's your word choice, if you like to underline or highlight. This word bondservant, it's so important. We're going to take the time to really explore what he says there. This word servant in the Greek is doulos. It means bond servant. It's a common New Testament word. It's even a common word there in Rome. We would best understand it as a slave. In Greek culture, it's most often referred to as someone that's involuntarily a slave. It's a permanent life service of servitude. But really, Paul elevates his word and he's using it in a Hebrew sense. He's describing a servant who is willingly committing himself to the master and that he loves and respects the master. There's a story in Exodus 21 that you could go back and read. And it is possible that the Apostle Paul had this story in mind of the Hebrew servant who so loved his master that he chose a lifetime of bondage rather than to have the freedom and the independence of his life. The Old Testament, that servant that's talked about, his ear was pierced. And it was a token of 
irrevocable surrender. Paul talks about this later on. We'll study this. But in Galatians, the slave, the brands, bearing about the marks of Jesus Christ. Paul's saying, I'm a slave to Jesus Christ. You say slave. That may be too strong. It's no longer an appropriate term. Slave, slavery is abhorrent. It's demonic. And in human context, it's simply horrendous. The only time that slavery can be a good thing is when the master who owns the slave is a perfect master. No such master exists outside of heaven. There is only one perfect master in his name is Jesus. His perfect, perfect master to whom he is a slave. This will repeat itself in the message on Sunday. But a master is perfect if he is in charge of what you eat and where you sleep and the days that are assigned to your life and the comfort of your life and the suffering of your life. And for that master to have perfect control over all of those things than to be in his possession is perfect ownership. Paul is saying, I am a slave to a perfect master. This is someone who is confident in the ability of his master. He knows who it is that he saw and who he heard on the Damascus Road in the bright light. He knows what's happened to his heart. And he knows that he can trust this perfect master. And he calls himself a slave to Jesus Christ. It's powerful language to call yourself a slave, a servant, a life sentence of love and trust and respect. That's exactly what he's saying here. I'm a slave to the perfect master who controls everything. He uses a term here at the end of this verse. He says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, the sent one, the messenger. And then he ends this verse with separated unto the gospel of God. Separated unto the gospel of God. He uses this term here, separated. I'm not going to take time to break that down. But know this, when you really study out that word separated in the Greek, it has to do with what's on the horizon. Everything that is coming and everything that is behind the horizon. Paul's saying, I'm separated and my whole horizon is in the hands and is dominated by God. In other words, Paul's saying, not only am I a slave to this perfect master, but he has everything in my life perfectly orchestrated. Everything that's happened to me, everything that's coming, he's such a perfect master that he has the horizons of what's behind and what's ahead in perfect control. That's a lot of trust that Paul's putting into his Lord and Savior and his master. Paul was separated by God before his conversion. Galatians 1.15 says, But when it pleased God... 
who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. Paul was separated before his conversion. Paul was separated by Christ at his conversion, Acts 9.15. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear me my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul's life was in the control of God before he was even born. The sovereignty of a holy, perfect God who in a perfect plan knew exactly what was to come of this man. And he said, before I was even out of the womb, God had separated me for his purpose. And I now surrender to the fact that because of the grace and the mercy bestowed upon me, I am his slave for life for his glory. Separated before birth, separated by Christ at his conversion, and separated by the Holy Spirit after his conversion. Acts 13.2 As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said... Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. My Lord, he separated him yet again to do the work of God, to be the apostle. Every step that the apostle Paul took, God ordained it. God knew it was coming and it was for his glory. Every meal he ate in a little shack or a little hut in the name of Jesus, God had already set it up for him to enjoy that meal. When he was going to be shipwrecked, God knew it was coming. When he was going to be snake bit, God knew it was coming. When he would be jailed, God knew it was coming. Everything in his life was ordained by holy God. He was in the full control of the Almighty. And he learned to love him and be more like him each and every day. Separated. And then this last part will take two minutes and end. Separated into the gospel of God. He could have just said the gospel and left it there. But he knew who he was writing to. He's writing to the Romans. This word that he uses, gospel, I'm going to butcher this and it's probably going to sound like Spanish, but it's the best I can do with Greek that becomes Spanish. It happens. This word in Greek, gospel, eugelion, used 60 times in this letter, 60 times. It has to do with good news. It's the same good news of Mark 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, the reason he qualifies the good news. Listen, you've got to get a hold of this. It will bless you. The reason he qualifies it as the gospel of God is because when he said the word gospel, he knew that those Romans who were living in that pagan God-awful society knew that the emperor and his court and his senators had robbed that word and were using it for emperor worship. That word good news was used when the emperor had been born in lineage That word good news had been used when the emperor ascends the throne. That word good news was used when the emperor 
had come back from a long journey. My Lord, we could preach that all day long. But Paul knew that these Romans who were reading this letter about good news, he wanted to make double, triple, quadruple sure that they knew that the good news that he was talking about did not belong to some Roman emperor, but it belonged to God. The good news that Jesus Christ had come. He had been born in Bethlehem. He had lived a sinless and perfect life. He had gone to the cross, become anathema, the curse. All the wrath of God poured out on him that he had died upon the cross, gone to the grave, self-extricated in power, resurrected, ascended. The Holy Ghost had come and everybody in Rome needed to hear the good news. That's what he's talking about. The good news that belongs to God. And let me remind you of something. The good news, the gospel message, the scripture itself, the working and the power of the Holy Spirit does not belong to us. It does not belong to a pastor. It does not belong to a denomination. God owns it. It's trademark. It belongs to him. You can't change it. You can't manipulate it. You can't deny it. It's truth. And Paul said, what I'm telling you is not hearsay. It's not a maybe. It is the factual facts delivered from God himself. It's the gospel of God. Take it to the bank. That's how he starts this letter. It's a loaded baked potato. So what's the practical application? This is all wonderful, but what does it do for my life? Glad you asked. I want you to notice early on as we study Romans, Paul before his conversion. Take in exactly what he was doing and who he was. The massive shift in his life and his actions. The point is this. God can take the most vile, wicked, wretched heart that hates even the name of Jesus Christ. And when the light comes on and that person sees the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, it'll change their life. You may be praying for someone who you feel is just as wicked as the Saul of Tarsus. I've got good news. If God can save him in all his wickedness and all his vileness towards the very name of Jesus, he can save your friend or your family member. Do not give up on praying for them. That is the power of the gospel revealed to broken men. Secondly, notice the love, the respect, the admiration, the duty, and the devotion of Paul to Jesus. We have read just the first 17 words of this letter. And it is evident that what he was preaching, what he was doing, and who he was doing it for was worth it. He was devoted. He called himself a slave in the first part of this letter. And So my prayer is tonight, as we begin this deep dive, this dissection of the book of Romans. God, help me to remember who I was, just like Moses looking at those Israelites as they got out of Egypt. Remember, you were a slave. I remember tonight who I was before Jesus. I never want to get over it. I never want to get over the love that will not let me go. You better not get over it, ladies and gentlemen. You better remember who you were before Jesus. Look back to what you were and where he came and how low he had to get to pull you up out of the mire and wipe you off and clean you off and give you a robe, a ring, a new name and call you son and daughter. Never give up on that. Never forget that. 
Don't forget who you were. Don't forget the power and the ability of God. And then lastly, if he called himself a servant, a slave to the gospel, boy, I want to be held accountable for what I do with Jesus. What I do personally, not my church, not my mom, not my dad, not my grandfather, not my friends. What do I do personally to tell other people the good news? Could you imagine if the Apostle Paul had live stream? My Lord in heaven, they would have sold enough purple to have nationally syndicated live stream on every Facebook page and channel in the world. That ought to be our hearts. That we tell as many people as we possibly can the good news of the gospel of God. That they can put their faith, hope, and trust in something. That there is hope in this world. Amen? Are you looking forward to this study? Praise the Lord. I am too. Let's pray. Go home. Beat the ice. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for this study. Thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word. We trust you. We love you. God, we appreciate you. The grace and the mercy that you bestowed upon us. Lord, we never want to get over the fact that you did what you did in our hearts personally. God, that I don't have to go to a priest. I don't have to go to a rabbi. I don't have to light a candle. But God, in grace and mercy, you allow me access to the throne room of heaven because of my advocate, Jesus Christ. And Lord, tonight, I want to embrace this heart of servitude that the Apostle Paul demonstrates. God, I want to be consumed, infatuated with the gospel message and believe in the depth of my heart that it can change the most wicked and vile soul for it changed my life. Help me never to lose sight of that. Lord, I pray for our church family tonight that is bereaved, those who are hurting, those who are struggling. God, for the person that's sitting in here right now that's struggling with their faith, they're doubting the existence of a God, they're questioning the inerrancy of Scripture, they're having a hard time believing. Lord, there's blockades, there's sin, there's doubt, there's fear. Lord, I pray that something from the message tonight would penetrate the doubt of their human existence and understanding. Father, they would run to the person of Jesus, cast themselves at his mercy, and believe upon his name for salvation. Holy Spirit of God, we believe you are a person. We know who you are. We believe you and every word that you say. God, you're not a doctrine. Lord, you're not a forethought. You're not a lesser part of the Trinity. Holy Ghost of God, we worship you. We honor you. Holy Ghost of God, we thank you for convicting power. We thank you for doing the hard work, the labor of salvation. Now, Father, I pray that you would convince and persuade hearts and minds to believe upon the name of Jesus Christ. God, you do the work. You save them. You open their eyes. You turn on the light. God, you know, you know the hearts and the minds that are here, the conversations we had since Sunday, the people who are on the edge, who are so close to being born again. Help them to believe. Help them to see. Lord, we thank you for our church. We thank you for the abilities that you've given us. God, to worship you in freedom. Help us never to take it for granted. Give us a wonderful, wonderful weekend. And if it be your will, allow us to meet here in person on Sunday. It be our plea and our request that you hold off the snow. God, if the snow is to come and we're to meet again online, we trust you. We ask you to be glorified in all that's said and all that's done. It's in Jesus' name we all pray together. Amen.
Amen. Good night. God bless you. Stay safe on the road. If it's wet, it is ice. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.